Well, hello there, goblins and ghouls. I know it's pretty rare for me to pop on before the episode starts. So when that happens, you know it's going to be dark. And there needs to be a trigger warning. So, um, trigger warning. Today we are talking about a lot of violent deaths, including children. And cannibalism. So, this is not the episode for the squeamish, and maybe not for any little ears. So, here is your heads up. Goblins and ghouls, and welcome to another episode of my Haunted Life podcast with me, your host, Angela Hartshorn. I hope you are all well today. I have had a week, you guys. If you follow me over on TikTok, and I think I posted some of them in the Facebook group, I had to go back and check because I was all over the place. I had a very interesting day, I think Wednesday. If you follow any of the Patreon stuff where we do ghost hunts, we do ghost hunts out of my shop at the Manitou Arts Center. And the spirit there was causing absolute havoc to my productivity and was shaking the doors. And, like, they started on the doors of the studio that I consider the haunted studio. Like, if you go in and ask anybody where the haunted studio is, most of us will point you in the right direction. Ironically enough, the other ones would probably point you to me. And then it came to my shop doors and were shaking my... It was strange. It... I'm used to my studio making weird noises. It's an old building. But this was new. It was not a fan. Like, I'm really familiar with the noises around my shop. I I literally recognize the footsteps of almost all of the regulars. I know when it's the wind or there's a critter in the attic or the outside doors have been left open or... If it's windy out, or the air conditioner is kicked on, this was something different. It was weird, and it's very hard to describe, so if you are interested, go check out the TikTok, all the videos are there. I spent way too much time investigating this, and then I made the mistake of telling my grandmother, who is a frequent guest on the show about it that evening when I got home and it's an old little cottage and it was windy that night so every noise I jumped at knowing damn good and well it was the wind but my grandmother being my grandmother is like maybe your ghost followed you home did not help me sleep at all thank you grandma Also, last night, I had a very interesting experience. I, if you follow me again, where I live, we have a ton of deer. And in particular, there's this one giant buck that has been hanging around. He actually sleeps outside my bedroom window. And last night, I was coming home late. I had picked up dinner for myself. I brought home hats to work on. I was going to work on the podcast and get it done and out. And it's the rut. If you don't know what the rut is, it's all the boy deer losing their mind with testosterone, trying to get laid as much as possible, and fighting 
for dominance. And this guy's huge. There's there's no fighting him. I'm pretty sure he was beating the hell out of a poor little spike the other day. But he's in the yard. And he's usually pretty chill. But last night, it was strange. Because he was in the yard next to us. But the fence between us is like two, three feet small wired fence. He could be over it in five seconds. And as I'm walking up my stairs, he comes from the other side of this people's fence, or the other side of these people's yard, and starts walking up to me. And he keeps walking up to me. And I'm like, okay, this is weird. It's dark. I forgot to turn on the porch light. The only light I have is the light to my cell phone and then everybody's like outside lights. But a lot of them had their lights off. It was oddly dark for our area. And he just keeps walking up to me. I'm like, this is freaking weird. And he gets, I don't know, he's probably six feet away from me just staring intently. And he's up in the yard. So he's also like three feet higher than me. And I'm like, this is weird. This is not like him. So I shook my bags and made some noise. And he went to run away. So I was like, cool, I'll keep going. And as soon as I started going up the stairs again, he turned back, came running back to the fence put his antlers down, charged the fence, hit the fence, and then came back and was staring at me again. This is, like, straight up where I would have been standing if I was three, four feet ahead of where I was. That wasn't okay. (laughs) I was, like... In shock, because he's, again, he's usually pretty chill, but, you know, the rut, they go crazy. So, I didn't know what to do. Like, I turned on my car alarm, I was, like, terrified to turn my back on him, he was digging in the dirt, he was doing a little bit of puffing, and I'm like, oh, this is bad. I ended up, our cottage has two different Uh, doors to get in. So I cut through the neighbors on the other side's yard and went all the way around my cottage to the other door. And he's staring me down the entire time. I was just waiting for him to like stand up on his hind legs and start walking all not deer shit. I was like totally spooked. Which considering today's episode it's not not dear but I was just done I was done with antlers I was done with guys like that so I'm recording Friday morning Uh, I also before we get into today's episode wanted to throw this out there because it's big news in the true crime world. There is a possibility, and it sounds like a decent possibility, that the Zodiac Killer has officially been named. Well, I shouldn't say officially. Nothing's official yet. But there's this group that's called the Case Breakers, and it's a bunch of like FBI and CIA retired agents, and they go and do these different cases on the side. And they think they figured it out. Uh, Last winter, the cipher, I think these are the guys that came out and said, we've solved the cipher. The guy that they believe is the Zodiac Killer, his name was the key to solving the cipher. Nothing is official. No one's arrested yet. But it's out there. And if anything comes of it, 
I'll let you know. That being said, also not gonna say his name. Plenty of other people have done that. But I'm gonna wait and see what happens with this. Also, if you pay attention to true crime TikTok at all, TikTok is exploding with... (laughs) Apparently this guy, who they believe is the Zodiac Killer, people have found his movie reviews on serial killer movies, basically making fun of them and telling them how they did it wrong. So, you know, that's kind of strange. Anyways, today's episode. At the beginning of the podcast, I mentioned it's a dark, dark, violent episode. Because today we are talking about one of those spooky, scary stories. The ones that kind of make your the hair on the back of your neck stand up, or at least for me. And I figured since it's October, I'm going spooky and dark. So today, we are talking about the one and only, the Wendigo. And actually, after the podcast, in the intro, or I'm sorry, the outro, wow, I have a somewhat personal story how I grew up with the Wendigo. So, stay tuned to that. So, let's get into it, shall we? Grab yourself a cup of tea, make sure the doors are locked and the sage is close by. I have a story to tell you. A Wendigo is an indigenous American evil spirit of the forest of mostly Canada, but sometimes found in the northern states of Minnesota and Wisconsin. And in my research, I found a story from Colorado, in particular, Pikes Peak, which is a five minute drive from me, so I'm not happy about that. It is said that there was once a hunter that got lost in the woods and resorted to cannibalism to survive. One story I remember reading said that he was with his brother and it was his brother that he cannibalized, but I couldn't find that in any of my sources, but that's the story I remember. He was then cursed for this and started having an insatiable taste for human flesh that corrupted his body and mind. The Wendigo has become pretty popular in pulp culture today, but according to Native Americans, it is something that shouldn't be taken lightly because it's basically pure evil. In fact, one of the translations I found for Wendigo is the evil spirit that devours mankind. It is described as being gaunt to the point of emaciation. Its desiccated skin pulled tightly over its bones. With its bones pushing out over its skin, its complexion the ash gray of death and its eyes pushed back deep into the sockets. The Wendigo looked like a gaunt skeleton recently disinterred from the grave. What lips it had were tattered and bloody, unclean and suffering from sup purations of the flesh. The Wendigo gave off a strange and eerie odor of decay and decomposition, of death and corruption. This 
description comes from Basil H. Johnson, who did a lot of research on this and other Native American legends and folklore. And in all of my research, his name just constantly kept coming up, so he's definitely an authority on the subject. According to ethno-historian Nathan Clarkson, it's also been said that the Wendigo has large, sharp claws and massive eyes like an owl. However, some people simply describe the Wendigo as skeleton-like and with an ash-toned skin. The Algonquin legend describes the creature as a giant with a heart of ice. Sometimes it is thought to be entirely made of ice. Its body is skeletal and deformed with missing lips and toes. The Ojibwe describe it as it was a large creature as tall as a tree with a lipless mouth and jagged teeth. Its breath was a strange hiss, its footprints full of blood, and it ate any man, woman, or child who ventured into its territory. And those were the lucky ones. Sometimes the Wendigo chose to possess a person instead, and then the luckless individual became a Wendigo himself, hunting down those he had once loved and feasting upon their flesh. A lot of legends talk about his speed and agility. Some claim he is unusually fast and can endure walking for long periods of time, even in harsh winter conditions. Other legends say he walks in a more haggard manner, as if he is falling apart. Another terrifying attribute of the Wendigo is his ability to mimic human voices. He uses this skill to lure people in and draw them away from civilization. Once they're isolated in the depths of the wilderness, he attacks them and then feasts on them. The Algonquin people say that during the turn of the century, a large number of their people went missing. The tribes attributed many of the mysterious disappearances to the Wendigo, thus calling him the spirit of lonely places. Other legends about the Wendigo state that they have the ability to possess the minds of those that have come in contact with them instead of eating them cursing them with a similar lust for human flesh until they kill someone and eat them and then start turning into Wendigos themselves. And sometimes, as we'll see later, this carries on through the family. It's a weird story. The Wendigo has recently been lumped in with Sasquatch and the Chupacabra as a cryptid. So a real flesh and blood creature that roams the woods that we just haven't discovered yet. But I tend to side with it being more of a spirit, according to the legends. But that's just me. Something really interesting about the Wendigo story is there is something called the Wendigo psychosis, and it's an actual diagnosable syndrome. So I found this description on Murderpedia. The term Wendigo psychosis refers to a condition in which Sufferers develop an insatiable desire to eat human flesh even when other food sources were readily available. 
often as a result of prior famine cannibalism. Wendigo psychosis has traditionally been identified by Western psychologists as a culture-bound syndrome, though there is a debate over the existence of phenomenon as a genuine disorder. The theory was popular primarily among psychologists in the early 1900s and many have resulted with a misinterpretation of northern Algonquin myths and culture. In accounts of Wendigo psychosis, members of the aboriginal communities in which it exists believe that cases literally involved individuals turning into Wendigos. Such individuals generally recognized these symptoms as meaning that they were turning into Wendigos and often requested to be executed before they could harm others. The most common response when someone began suffering from Wendigo psychosis was curing attempts by traditional native healers or Western doctors. In the unusual cases where these attempts failed and the Wendigo began either to threaten those around them or to act violently or antisocially, they were then generally executed. Cases of Wendigo psychosis, though evidently real, were relatively rare, and it was even rarer for them to actually culminate in the execution of the sufferer. Fascination with Wendigo psychosis among Western ethnographers, psychologists, and anthropologists led to a hotly debated controversy in the 1980s over the historicity of the phenomenon. Some researchers argued that Wendigo psychosis was essentially a fabrication, the result of naive anthropologists taking stories related to them at face value. Others have pointed to a number of credible eyewitness accounts, both by Algonquins and by Westerners, as evidence that Wendigo psychosis was a factual historical phenomenon. The frequency of Wendigo psychosis cases decreased sharply in the 20th century as boreal Algonquin people came into greater and greater contact with Western ideologies and more sedentary, less rural lifestyles. While there is some substantive, wow, I can't talk, evidence to suggest that Wendigo psychosis did exist, a number of questions concerning the condition remain unanswered, and there is continuing debate over its nature, significance, and prevalence. So there you go. To me, it seems very a westernized description of the psychosis only being a psychosis. Uh, does it explain away the Wendigo completely that it's just this weird indigenous vers- version of lycanthropy and it's all in people's heads? Think the Native American exorcism and possession? I don't know. That's up to you to decide. I personally don't think so. Now, all of this might sound fairly far-fetched and fantastic. Well, not in a good way, of course. But there are so 
many stories and sightings, even to this day, from people. I personally don't think it can just be written off simply as a psychosis. Now, we're getting down to the nitty-gritty, and I'm going to tell you about some of these cases of the Wendigo. And this is where I'm going to warn you again. Some of these stories get dark and pretty gruesome. A weird thing, especially around the turn of the century with... uh, the Wendigo is actually fairly well documented. More so than I thought. Like when I started this, I knew a couple of the big stories and I knew it being, you know, a spiritual belief. But I I did not realize how many there were. So I'm going to touch on ones that I had never heard of and then go into the most famous case and even a fairly recent one. So there was a large number of Wendigo incidents reported in newspapers in Western Canada throughout the 1890s. A lot of these stories I'm telling you today involved men becoming Wendigos. Men. But that wasn't always the case. And I didn't realize that. And I thought this was interesting. In 1897, two women from Whitefish Lake were brought to a missionary for treatment after one of them had a dream of her brother who had been dead for four years, who offered her human flesh to eat in a bowl of ice, and both women subsequently became sick and were thought to be Wendigos. Both of them ultimately recovered, and they never consumed human flesh. Pretty mild case of Wendigoism. When, okay, I think I just made up the word Wendigoism. But that that's the trick. If you eat human flesh, you're there's no saving you. A weird other side of the stories, speaking of, at the time, is people being arrested for killing Wendigos. You have to remember that this area at this time is very rugged and rural and there's not a lot of people running around all over the place. It's pretty sparse. A lot of time it was indigenous people, a little bit of fur trappers sprinkled in there, and missionaries. The missionaries who would set up governments and didn't pay too much attention to native stories until something bad happened. In 1899, two men from Cat Lake were arrested and put on trial for murdering a man who had been overtaken by the Wendigo spirit. The afflicted man had asked them to kill him before he killed others and they had done so. A contemporary news article on the 1896 Trout Lake Wendigo describes the justification of disposing of the Wendigo in this way. The reason that an axe was used was that there was a belief among the Indians that a bullet will not pierce a wendigo or man-eater. The body was burned 
and large trees felled over the grave to prevent the possibility of a reappearance of the Wendigo. Some days after the death of the man, the people in the settlement were terror-stricken, believing that he might reappear and destroy them. His murder is justified on the grounds that unless he was killed, he would have killed others, and that it is custom. It is the custom of the country. And that was in the Brandon Mail, April 30th, 1896. The most famous case of the Wendigo I feel like I should say infamous and horrible. And this is where the story gets dark. Obviously, it's already been dark, but this is where it gets sad and really dark. Uh, The most infamous case of the Wendigo is that of Swift Runner. Swift Runner was a big man, over six feet tall and very well liked. He was a Cree Indian. He was mild and trustworthy, a considerate husband, and very fond of his children from everything I could find about him. All of these traits endeared him to his people and to the traders at the Hudson Bay Company, who trusted him as a guide for the Northwest Mounted Police. All of that changed, however. Swift Runner started having violent whiskey benders that completely unbalanced him. So much so that the police sent him back to his tribe. And when these whiskey benders got out of hand there, his tribe kicked him out. So, him and his family went to go live in the wilderness in the winter of 1878. I saw between 1878 and 79, but somewhere in there. So he went out with his wife. One account said mother, one account said mother-in-law, his brother, and their six children. And they were not properly prepared for the harsh winter and the family began to starve and sadly his eldest son passed away and that seems to be the trigger for him going off the deep end they were only 25 miles away from emergency food supplies at the hudson's bay company post but they didn't go for help I I don't know why the stories tend to say that they didn't go for help because he's mentally deranged. I don't know if it was just really harsh weather and they didn't think they could make it. I don't know. But I wanted to throw that out there. The next spring, Swift Runner came out of the woods, odd, and by himself. And people did not, they they took notice of this because this was strange. He looked healthy and was not starved at all, which was very weird for someone that had just gone through such a tough winter with a bunch of people in one house. He also could not give a satisfactory account of his family's whereabouts. And his in-laws became worried. They decided to tell the Northwest Mounted Police, who had only been around in the West there for five years. They are very unequipped to handle this. Inspector Savre 
Gagnon, I'm assuming French, I can't pronounce it anyways, was given the task of investigating Swift Runner's behavior. He and a small party of policemen accordingly tracked to the trapper's camp. I believe I also got this part of the article from Murderpedia. Swift Runner obligingly showed the mounted police a small grave near his camp. He explained that one of his boys, his eldest son, had died and was buried there. Gannon and his detachment opened the grave and found the bones undisturbed. That, however, did not explain the human bones scattered around the encampment. Gannon produced a skull, which Swift Runner willingly told him was that of his wife. Without much prodding, Swift Runner revealed what happened to the rest of his family. At first, Swift Runner became haunted by dreams. A Wendigo spirit called on him to consume the people around him. The spirit crept through his mind, gradually taking control. Finally, he was the Wendigo and Swift Runner no longer. The Wendigo in Swift Runner's body then killed and ate his wife. So, from this point on, it is described that this article is written that the Wendigo is the one killing them, not Swift Runner. It gets a little strange, but I just want to remind you, Swift Runner, it's all Swift Runner. <laughs> it's all his body. This accomplished, the Wendigo forced one of Swift Runner's boys to kill and butcher his younger brother. Uh, if I remember correctly, I think the younger brother was only like five years old. While enjoying this grisly repast, the spirit hung Swift Runner's infant by the neck from a lodgepole and tugged at the baby's dangling feet. It was later shown that he had also done away with Swift Runner's brother and his mother-in-law, though he acknowledged that she had been a bit tough. The revolted mount mounted police party hauled Swift Runner and the mutilated evidence back to Fort Saskatchewan. The trial began on August 8th 1879. The judge and jury did not view the Wendigo idea in the same light as the Cree. They saw Swift Runner as a murderer and the trapper made no attempt to hide his guilt. He was quickly sentenced to be hung. The sentence presented a problem, however, Again, these police officers have only been there five years, and they apparently had never conducted an execution. Although the Hudson Bay Company had once hung an employee for murder, this was, in all intents and purposes, the first formal execution in Western Canada. A gallows was erected within the fort enclosure at Fort Saskatchewan for only $50. I thought that was interesting. And an old army pensioner named Rogers was made the hangman. On the appointed morning, a bitter cold, a bitterly cold December 20th, Swift Runner was led to the scaffold. Standing over the trap, the unrepentant cannibal was given the opportunity to address the large crowd that had gathered. He openly acknowledged his guilt and thanked his jailers 
for their kindness, then berated his guard for making him wait in the cold. I, I'm just like, really? Okay. And I also thought this was interesting, going back to the court case. He was found guilty by three local residents, four locals who knew the Cree language, and a Cree translator. There was also a local in I'm sorry, local indigenous chiefs were also invited to observe the execution to pacify rumors of unnecessarily unnecessary cruelty inflicted upon the condemned. However, the hanging had been delayed after locals used the trap from the scaffolding as kindling for a fire, and the hangman forgot the straps to bind Swift Runner's arms. Again, they didn't know what they were doing. At 9.30 a.m., Swift Runner was hanged in front of 60 onlookers and pronounced dead shortly after. Within an hour, his body was cut from the rope and buried in the snow outside the fort walls. Nevertheless, the mounted police must have accomplished their first execution well enough. A more experienced spectator, a California 49er named Jim Reed commented, that was the prettiest hanging I ever seen, and it's the 29th. People are strange. And this, this just feels like a bygone error, era. This is, you know, turn of the century kind of things. But there are modern cases. So even though Ma Wendigos might seem like something of myth and legend from a long time ago, we have cases like Vince Lee, which is another horrific story and another warning. So for this next story, I took it directly from the Wikipedia page, which is not something I like to do. It just makes me feel slightly icky. That being said, the Wikipedia page has it down to the minute and the hour that this case was happening. So it's very well done. And I remember when this happened, and I remember following it. So, it's, it's all there. On July 30th, 2008, Tim McLean, a carnival barker, was returning home to Winnipeg after working at a fair in Edmonton. He departed Edmonton on board Greyhound Bus 1170? to Winnipeg via the Yellowhead Highway through Saskatchewan. He sat at the rear, one row ahead of the toilet. At 6.55 p.m., the bus departed from a stop in Erickson, Manitoba. With a new passenger, Vince Lee, I can't say his middle name, I'm sorry. If you hear a noise in the background, that's my heater kicking on. It's kind of loud. Lee described Lee described as a tall man in his 40s with a shaved head and sunglasses 
originally sat near the front of the bus, but moved to sit next to McLean following a scheduled rest stop. McLean barely acknowledged Lee, then fell asleep against the window pane, headphones covering his ears. According to witnesses, McLean was sleeping with his headphones on when the man sitting next to him suddenly produced a large knife and started stabbing him in the neck and chest. After the attack began, the police driver pulled to the side of the road and he and all the other passengers fled the vehicle. The driver and two other men men attempted a rescue of McLean but were chased away by Lee who slashed at them from behind the locked bus doors. Lee ultimately decapitated McLean and displayed his severed head to those standing outside the bus, then returned to McLean's body and began severing other parts and consuming some of McLean's flesh. So I just want to stop there for a second. Obviously what is happening is absolutely horrific. Just imagine being these people who just had to get rushed off of a bus because of a murder. They're in the middle of nowhere, Canada, in the dark watching this happen and there's nothing they can do about it i cannot even imagine and the fact that he takes the guy's head and displays it to them i remember seeing one thing that he was actually like jokingly offering him offering them pieces of his flesh as well that's not in this but i just remember hearing that story at 8.30 p.m., the Royal Canadian Mounted Police received a report of a stabbing on a Greyhound bus west of the city. They arrived to find the suspect still on board the bus, being prevented from escaping by another passenger, the bus driver, and a truck driver who had provided a crowbar and a hammer as a weapon. So these guys literally have watched this horrific thing happen, but they still have their wits about them enough to make sure this guy is trapped. Amazing. The other passengers were huddled at the roadside, some of them crying and vomiting. As the suspect had earlier attempted to escape, by driving the bus away, the driver of the bus had engaged the emergency immobilization immobilizer system, rendering the vehicle inoperable. Witnesses had observed the suspect stabbing and cutting McLean's body with a knife and carrying McLean's severed head. By eight, I'm sorry, by 9 a.m. p.m., police were in a standoff with the suspect and had summoned special negotiators and a heavily armed tactical unit. The suspect alternatively placed, paced the length of the bus and defiled the corpse. Police officers then observed Lee eating parts of the body. Meanwhile, the stranded passengers were transported from the scene to be interviewed at the Brandon RCMP detachment. RCMP officers reportedly heard Lee say, I have to stay on this bus forever. On July 31st, 2008 at 1.30 a.m., the suspect attempted to escape from the bus by breaking through a window. The RCMP arrested Lee shortly afterward. He was shot with a taser twice, 
handcuffed and placed in the back of a police cruiser. Parts of the victim's body placed in plastic bags were retrieved from the bus while his ear, nose, and tongue were found in Lee's pockets. The victim's eyes and part of his heart were never recovered and are presumed to have been eaten by Lee. At 10 a.m., Greyhound representatives took the other passengers to a local store to replace their clothes, which remained on the bus. They just got out. They didn't grab their stuff. They arrived in Winnipeg at 3.30 p.m. that day to be reunited with family members and friends. In February 2016, so this is eight years after the incident, and again, Lee was found mentally unstable. So he never really had a real trial. It's a little bit different in Canada, and I don't want to go into the Canadian court system with that kind of thing. But he was housed in an institution for all this time. In February 2016, it was reported that Lee had legally changed his name to Will Baker and was seeking to leave his group home to live independently. He won the right to live alone on February 26 upon the recommendation of the Criminal Code Review Board. And then on February 10th, 2017, so just a year after that, the Manitoban, Manitoba Criminal Code Review Board ordered Lee to be discharged. Lee was granted an absolute discharge. There will be no legal obligations or restrictions pertaining to Lee's independent living. Therefore, he is out living his life now. Like, I don't even think he has to have set up uh, meetings with a psychologist or anything. I think he's out. Which to me is fascinating. And this story almost immediately got lumped up, lumped in with the Wendigo legend because of how brutal and horrific it was. Of course, the cannibalism. It's in Canada. And one of the stories I remember about this too was when he was tased. The reason he was tased twice was because he didn't go down. So he almost had the, the supernatural strength to him. He has never claimed to be a Wendigo. Just anyone who's read this story went, mm, yeah, about that. So, before I leave you today, I have a fun personal story about the Wendigo. I first learned about the Wendigo when I was probably late elementary, early middle school. I don't remember exactly. I don't remember how I found out about it. I was probably watching some mystery show somewhere, something like that. Anyway, I remember reports of it in Michigan and Minnesota and Wisconsin. Well, my father is from back, backwoods, Wisconsin. He's practically Canadian. So I had to ask him about it. Actually, any time something weird pops up from Wisconsin, I have to ask him about it. 
And for those that don't know, there's a lot of weird things that happen in Wisconsin. Anyways, I asked him if he had ever heard of the Wendigo. So, my dad is not overly religious or superstitious in any way, unless it's football season. But he immediately got very serious and hushed me and told me that you don't say that name out loud. I've never seen my dad react like this. Of course, it made me even more curious and I had to explain why. He explained that if you speak its name aloud, you might accidentally summon it. This was so strange to me because my dad is into all of the mystery and paranormal stuff. He's the one that got me into it. Like, that was our bonding was watching Unsolved Mysteries kind of thing. But he's usually very skeptical of everything. He's the one that will explain the science behind it. He, he's definitely one of those armchair paranormal investigators. Like, we love watching Bigfoot shows together and critiquing the hell out of them. So I had to prod him more. So, where my father grew up, was very near a reservation, and he grew up with a lot of indigenous kids. He had heard the stories of the Wendigo from an early age from his friends, and it just creeped him the hell out. As a big hunter who spent a lot of time in the woods, this was creepy. One night, many years later, my father and a bunch of friends were hanging out at a friend's house drinking and I want to say they were like hanging out in the garage just picture that 70s show that's basically what's happening here and someone mentioned the Wendigo and most of these kids are indigenous my dad if I remember correctly was the only white guy there we have some indigenous blood but it's so far back and not a part of the culture that either of us were raised in. So he's like the token white guy. My father immediately was concerned that his friends were bringing it up so nonchalantly and said something along the lines like, aren't you not supposed to say the name out loud, right? His friends immediately seeing his concern immediately started messing with him and following him around getting right behind him and going windigo 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 so like the rest of the night and i guess it continued throughout their friendship just to mess with him and the windigo is such a weird character because it has become this pop culture phenomenon. Like I said earlier, it's been lumped in with all the cryptids, which are getting really popular right, right now, which is making my, like, awkward child heart so happy. And the Wendigo has been a fixture now. It's, just, it's so strange to me. Um, there is a wonderful movie called Ravenous, which is supposed to be inspired by some of the Wendigo slash Alfred Packard myths. Maybe I'll do Alfred Packard one day. That might be fun. But if you haven't seen it, it's really good. So just want to say thank you to everyone out there listening today. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. If you like your show, if you like the show, please tell your friends and family about it. Word of mouth goes a long way. My research for today's episode will be in the story notes. If you have a ghost story to share, don't forget to drop me a line at myhauntedlifepodcast at gmail.com. 
You can also follow My Haunted Life Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Don't forget that we have a My Haunted Life Podcast Facebook group where we have a lot of fun. If you like what you hear and want to support the show, please subscribe to the Patreon page. You can support the show for as little as $2 a month. And right now, I'm also doing the top 10 episodes every week throughout October. So you get a little extra dose of stuff. And I'm filming them so you can actually like hang out with me and drink tea and listen to my top 10. And that's it for this show. I'll see you all next week on my Haunted Life podcast. And until then, stay haunted.